there was a quick scramble to get a new government in place, which eventually ended up being led by Yoshihide Suga, um, who before then, um, most people didn't know. If they did know him, uh, it was only as Reo Aoji-san, uh, due to a very well-publicized uh, press conference at the announcement of the new era name. Welcome back to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Today, we're joined by Editor-in-Chief Naito-san, Senior Editor Susan Komori, and Journalist Ariel Busetto. I'm your host, Galileo. Last year, we published a five-day series called The Year in Our Stories, where we covered international friction that focused our attention in 2020. We also did the opposite side of the International Corporation, Shores Up Free and Open Indo-Pacific. We did Japan's Democracy in Action, looking into domestic politics. And furthermore, we looked into the economy and technology battle of COVID, how we saw inspiration bring happiness to a lot of people and also maybe a sense of hope. And the last in, this, in our series was pop culture brings fun relief to Japan and the world. In today's session, we're going to have a roundtable discussion of each of these stories that we published and all the content that were part of these um, articles. And the first one was the international friction that focused our attention. The region was battered by alarming international friction. So that's Japan and the surrounding Northeast Asian countries, um, North Korea, South Korea, also China, and also around us in Southeast Asia and Oceania. Susan, you covered a lot of these stories. Could you give us your thoughts on, on this topic? Yes, for a year that started um, very calmly and optimistically with Japan celebrated Australia Day as a friend of Australia, we pulled the Australian flag up on um, on our buildings in Tokyo, the lights, the colored, the Tokyo Tower. And uh, then Taiwan held a huge free election with a, an overwhelming result. And everybody thought that, uh, that Taiwan's ability to do that, despite the friction with China, also gave China an opportunity to perhaps um, rethink its approach to the region and contribute to the peace and security in the area. Um, but our calmness was almost immediately shattered as the uh, reality of the coronavirus uh, began to set in um, with reports trickling in. Uh, Taiwan uh, reported something is off. Uh, the, there's a dangerous virus in China. And uh, uh, then we had the Diamond Princess uh, in Japan, which brought the pandemic here and began to focus the world's attention on it. Uh, and as we all in the world began to um, focus on what China itself, as of the end of January, was still calling the Wuhan virus. Um, as we turned around, uh, we also found that Taiwan, or excuse me, that China at the same time was making uh, very aggressive territorial grabs um, in the region on Taiwan, around Taiwan, around uh, Japan, uh, in the South Pacific, it extended its territorial uh, administration over the man-made islands in the South Pacific that it had grabbed out of the hands of several other countries that have rightful claims. And despite the International Court of, um, of Justice's um, ruling against China on that, they, they just went ahead and did it. So their territorial um, grabs uh, beginning in that area, the South China Sea, uh, are reported by our 
contributors all over the world. Uh, and we have some really good stories on that. The editorial that started this off was called and uh, like a looter at a fire, Beijing encroaches on the South China Sea amid the pandemic. And that pretty much states the same for what, ha- what China did in the Senkakus, although they didn't achieve their goal. And in the Indian-Tibetan borderlands in the Himalayas. Um, and then China held joint naval exercises in the Western Pacific, which some of our contributors saw as a uh, widely um, accepted effort to try to expel or at least intimidate U.S. forces from the region. Um, so it was it, there was a lot of tension from the, the end of January to the end of the year. The year was filled with tension of the coronavirus that occupied most of our attention and uh, coming out of China and Chinese territorial ambitions. Uh, and, and some of the countries in the Pacific Islands, the Western Pacific, uh, also um, reached out to uh, Japan and to other allies, uh, trying to sort of figure out how to get out of the stranglehold that they found themselves in. But there was an enormous amount of tension. Um, so what do you take away from this is that this kind of tension also made us rethink um, our approach to regional security which applies directly to you know how Japan ended up defining the threat that it faces. I think for the first time, the 2020 Defense White Paper actually defined China as a threat uh, and not just sort of dancing around uh, the, the subject. Uh, so it made people sort of gain a little bit of clarity. And we covered a, a lot of our stories are focused on that. But then the next step is, what do you do about it? One aspect that we did um, cover was uh, the, not just also on a sort of territorial um, uh, aspect, but also, for example, the kind of international friction that there was also from international bodies. Uh, And so one uh, aspect that we cover in great detail was the role of the WHO, so the World Health Organization, uh, in all of this, and how the lack of transparency coming from China um, and its approach to other countries that were trying to uh, highlight the risk that was coming from the COVID-19, how this lack of uh, international communication brought a lot of damage to the whole world as a whole. Um, And so one interview that we did, for example, was with a Taiwanese uh, student, Vivi Lin, who basically was, you know, pushing back towards the criticism that Taiwan was, uh, you know, not being transparent with the WHO and so on. And she was saying this was not the case. Taiwan was always transparent to the WHO and so on. And I think this small episode uh, was showing how um, there was a lot of problems with how the international situation uh, was dealt with in the COVID-19 and uh, uh, how... um, uh, there was, a, you know, what, what Susan said, what do we do about this now, given have learned from the international crisis? So the, the issue of international bodies, um, in the case of the WHO, there was a strong international uh, impression that China controlled the WHO because China had given a huge amount of aid to the country that the current uh, WHO chief uh, comes from, and he was in a pos- the position to be negotiating that when he was there. Uh, and Taiwan had warned the world about this, and, and China 
made the WHO not only ignore Taiwan, but refuse to allow Taiwan to participate in the WHO deliberations, either as a member or even as an observer. Uh, so trying to cut out the country that actually in the end was the most successful at uh, getting in front of the pandemic and addressing it. Uh, and this student was terrific in terms of you know, coming and saying, this is the reality uh, and I'm a student and, and, you know, I'm not going to call, uh, do the international political thing of calling um, China, uh, you know, uh, by sort of sweet talking words. And she, she just hit right back at the Taiwan, at the WHO chief who was uh, following the Beijing line. Yeah, I agree with all a lot of those points mentioned. Um, I want to say that, yeah, despite the friction between Japan and surrounding regions, uh, I would say not even just Japan, like other countries in other continents had um, friction with, with China. Lots of trust issues were, were developed from there. But if we look on the positive side of things, um, and that's what, the, what was next in the series that we, we published, um, that Japan was becoming more autonomous and learning to deal with the challenges. And also it gave Japan... Um, a unique opportunity to present itself as a leader in the region. Uh, I wanted to ask you again, Susan, because you covered a lot of these stories, um, especially in the international cooperation, shores up free and open in the Pacific. Well, what's your assessment of Japan in the region in terms of this international cooperation? Well, I think most of the countries in the region ended up turning to Japan um, for leadership uh, in the region as to how to come, you know, how to peacefully uh, deal with the, th the China threat coming out of China. Um, for example, uh, one of the intimidations we didn't talk about in the last section, but that uh, is among our articles is the intimidation of Australia, China's intimidation of Australia when Australia came out and said that the international community absolutely uh, demands and has a right to have uh, a thorough investigation, a thorough and independent investigation into the origins of the um, the. COVID-19 pandemic in China. Uh, and the Chinese responded by uh, sanctioning um, imports uh, and then calling Australian names in, in the international uh, public. And uh, it, it was a, became known as sort of their, the Chinese uh, wolf warrior uh, diplomacy with the head diplomats in China doing a lot of literal name calling. And Japan came to Australia's defense on that. Uh, and then India and the United States as well, uh, France, Canada, Germany, uh, and others. And in the end, what they, they came to do was to form a stronger alliance of what they called like-minded democracies to address the common threat and to preserve the free and open Indo-Pacific. So they were they were looking at the uh, the intimidation, but they were also looking at the, the territorial grabs. And so what do you do? Well, you, you up your presence in the region. And so in particular, the focus, um, I think the most important focus we want to talk about here is, is the development of the Quad, which um, includes basically four countries, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. Um, and at various levels, the four countries had done, um, participated in joint exercises in the Indo-Pacific for free and open um, passageway for shipping and, uh, and other uh, movement and uh, 
commerce. Uh, but as the Chinese intimidation ex extend, expanded, uh, they, they came together and they did more in terms of three-party and four-party, all four parties participating in joint exercises, and uh, then found themselves with uh, smaller island countries in the, in the uh, Pacific Island countries, reaching out for support because they, those countries found China strangling them with debt and also trying to in, impose conditions on how their governments operated and uh, restrict the enforcement of the rule of law against Chinese nationals. Um, so stories on all of these are also in our pages. Uh, but what the, the countries that came, the large countries that came together ended up pulling in um, France and the United Kingdom and Canada and Germany, among others, that wanted to become what's now sort of tentatively called the Quad Plus. They're not official Quad members, at least at this point, but they're all countries that are wanting to participate in showing the, the value of the concept of free and open Indo-Pacific mm -hmm. and democracy and human rights in the region. Uh, and in part, these countries also were responding. We didn't talk about Hong Kong in the last section, but certainly Chinese um, uh, China's actions in its special autonomous region of Hong Kong last year um, alarmed uh, democracies around the world. And that's another reason I think that they came together um, so strongly to to say that, you know, democracies have to stand together. And as they did so, smaller powers in the region, the ASEAN countries and the Pacific Island countries began reaching out for support. So I really enjoyed how that article itself ended with a question. And it, it was like, what new levels of cooperation will be made possible by this year's achievements? So technically, we're still in the in the pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to how the Quad or the Quad Plus develops its relationship this year in 2021. More focusing now into Japan, we published a story on Japan's democracy in action. Uh, we experienced a change in prime minister and the Tokyo government had a re-election and we had history turnout of, of more votes. Plus uh, it was a landslide victory, uh, re-electing a female governor for Tokyo. I know Ariel, you covered a lot of these stories. A lot of them were related to COVID-19, but also just with the policy of um, people flying into Japan. Ariel wanted to know what your thoughts over um, Japan's democracy in action was. So as you mentioned, uh, the agenda was largely uh, dominated domestically and as well as internationally by COVID-19 uh, on various aspects of the society in general. Um, so obviously you mentioned international borders was a big uh, topic that was discussed uh, throughout the year. Um, Japan formally closed the borders uh, towards the end of March um, and was basically not letting people in for a lot throughout the summer. And then uh, slowly uh, the borders were reopened again um, uh, towards the autumn. So like mostly like going from September, October and so on. When I say open again, uh, I mean that basically um, 
well, obviously tourists and people who don't have long-term visas couldn't come in throughout. But even people who did have long-term visas were temporarily not allowed to go out because then they wouldn't be allowed to come in again. So they could have gone out, but then they wouldn't have a re-entry permit, as you call it in Japan. So that was one topic that was very much discussed. But on a more domestic level, it was very much to do with what are we going to do to deal with the situation? So, of course, there was the state of emergency that was called um, in April and then then uh, it was uh, released or sort of called back at the end of May. And then throughout the summer, it was how do we boost the various sectors of the economy that have suffered during this period? Uh, um, and then there was an ongoing debate, for example, of uh, lockdown, no lockdown, because the Japanese constitution doesn't allow for uh, lockdown like the, as of the likes that we've seen in Europe, uh, in the US. So how do how do we incentivize people and how do we convince the population to uh, actually abide by the the rules to avoid the spread of COVID-19? And it's a debate that is going on here now as well. Um, for the most of it, uh, as we've seen, the, the sort of the numbers of the cases uh, throughout of COVID-19 cases throughout the year, Japan has failed fairly well. Um, but it's obviously an ongoing situation and one that is dominated domestically. Um, but on a more sort of breaking news aspect, I guess the big thing that we should talk about is uh, obviously the transition of the government. So uh, Japan saw a change of administration throughout 2020 uh, as uh, the incumbent prime minister Shinzo Abe, who had been uh, the historically uh, the 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 one the prime minister stayed the most in office with uh, seven years and eight months. Um, he resigned at the end of August due to health reasons, which were uh, the same reasons why he resigned the first time that he was in office. And uh, and he there was a quick scramble to get a new government in place, which eventually ended up being led by Yoshihide Suga. Um, who before then, um, most people didn't know. If they did know him, uh, it was only as Reo Aoji-san, uh, due to a very well-publicized uh, press conference at the announcement of the new era name. Um, and so it was uh, very much a sort of trying to see how that uh, panned out and, uh, you know, uh, how the COVID-19 policy would be shaped in the new administration thereon. Um, and so now the big topics that are discussed, uh, again, the vaccine, uh, how is the rollout going to work? Uh, how uh, should hospitals be dealing with the situation and so on? So very much COVID-19 dominated throughout. Yeah, and it's also very interesting to see Prime Minister Suga try to um, rally up the nation um, creating like the go-to campaign, um, trying to create a sense of normalcy. Um, and we saw some breakthroughs in society despite the pandemic. We saw some technolog technological advances as an example. We also got to experience what it was like to be traveling um, during the pandemic for those who, for those who experienced or used the go-to um, incentives or subsidies by the government. Um, likewise, mm -hmm. we had the go-to eat and and the similar um, subsidies. Uh, I know we published the story Economy and Technology Battle COVID um, Bring Inspiration as part of the You and Our Stories series. And we looked at uh, Japanese technology or Japanese me medical, medical tech or robotics and the go-to campaigns. A lot of inspiring stories in here. Susan, could you share with us one of the stories that inspired you throughout 2020? If, if you want me to talk about what really inspired me 
in 2020, I have to say it was the space stories. There was a pandemic and, uh, and Japanese scientists uh, at every level uh, just went above and beyond and they moved uh, heaven and earth to improve uh, science and to reach for the stars. And certainly uh, one of the areas we'll talk about in a few minutes probably is uh, the supercomputer um, um, Fugaku, which was scheduled to go online a year or so after it actually was put to use helping to uh, program the uh, the dangers coming out of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and, and how masks work and how people transmit uh, uh, airborne um, viruses and things like that. Uh, but what really inspired me, frankly, was Japan's achievements in space. Um, the, one of the more recent ones, a very flashy one, uh, Japanese astronaut uh, uh, Soichi Noguchi, along with three Americans, uh, boarded the first uh, privately um, uh, funded and developed uh, air spacecraft, transport space, human spacecraft in history, and they set off for the International Space Station in a, a beautiful uh, blast off in a beautiful um, uh, landing, the beautiful connection with the International Space Station. Uh, the name of the the ship is the Resilience. They named it the Resilience because they wanted to show that despite the worst conditions of humanity uh, globally, a pandemic that affected everywhere in the world, um, that mankind could reach for the stars and get there. And it just it just was a really hugely, hugely inspiring story. But it didn't really stop there. Um, Japan has also uh, other astronaut programs um, in the works. And one of their astronauts from uh, uh, previous ventures is Koichi Wakata, and he talked about uh, a Japanese astronaut will be landing on the moon within the decade. Uh, and we have an interview with him. Well, um, Galileo, you have a young son, and um, he's uh, perhaps destined to be uh, one of our space travelers, and you never know. He, a decade might be a bit soon, but I have to wonder where he's going to end up landing. First on Mars, um, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Too ambitious. Perhaps it could be the first on Mars. <laughs> um, but it's not just the people either. Um, the Konotori program uh, successfully ended last year. And then Japan's Hayabusa 2 program, which has been, uh, it had been sending the, the, the small probe to visit a tiny um, asteroid, Ryugyu, uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, and it managed to, uh, the about a year, a little over a year ago, it managed to pull out samples from Ryugyu by blasting just an incredibly precise holes uh, to get the pristine samples of the, the materials that the asteroid is made out of. And it captured that and then put them in a little pod that it carried back to Earth. Um, only it, in the end, Hayabusa 2 didn't, didn't come back to Earth itself uh, because it still has life left in it. And the Japanese um, inter international, the Japanese space program JAXA ended up reprogramming it to uh, come toward Earth and put its payload in a position where the payload could be recovered on Earth successfully. Uh, and it was an incredibly, it had everything had to be absolutely precision 
movement and precision timing to uh, get on the right path at the right speed in the right position, release the payload and have it then land uh, in the Australian um, desert. Uh, and we all watched it. Yeah, <laughs> I think too, yeah. the world watched it yeah, uh, and we reported it. And not only were the samples successfully recovered, but the, the samples themselves were more interesting and more of them than, um, than I think the Japanese scientists had uh, expected or hoped for. Uh, it, it was a really uplifting story. Um, that's what inspired me. But yes, Japan also had other uh, great successes in technology. Yeah, it was an amazing year, as we can say. It's like rocket science um, and high-level yes. technology. But like, bring it down to medical technology. I know Ariel, you covered some stories related to that. Could you give us um, your thoughts on that last from last year? Yes. Uh, so one of the stories that we covered was the interview with Ryuichi Morishita, uh, who is a professor at uh, Osaka University, and he is the lead researcher for the Japanese. Japan produced a vaccine, which is obviously a topic that is on everybody's minds, especially at this time of the pandemic. Um, and it was really inspiring to see that, uh, of course, uh, we hear about the uh, vaccine development efforts throughout the world uh, of Pfizer, Moderna, and so on. But this is created in Japan from this company that to all effects sounds like a startup, you know, you know, Morishita Sensei is the owner, co-founder, everything of this small company. And by the way, he's also producing this vaccine, which will probably save many, many lives here in Japan. And so hearing about these uh, developments uh, that will help uh, Japan in the near future was very inspiring. But then also not just on the sort of strictly medical field, but also on the sort of technological aspect that will affect uh, the health and uh, uh, of everybody in Japan was also developed on, say, technology uh, that could help in everyday lives. So Susan briefly mentioned about Fugaku, the supercomputer that um, had incredible findings uh, with that helped us in everyday life. So things such as if you air well the spaces, uh, trains are not so unsafe to ride on because there, can, there is enough circulation of the air not to cause uh, a risky situation or um, developments in robotic technology that allowed for us to go safely in restaurants without having to worry about being infected with the virus. So in general, uh, a lot of inspiring stories there of how we managed to deal with COVID-19 throughout the year. And it's yeah, good to again monitor this in 2021 as technology continues to aid us um, and help us. I'd like to add a couple of other things that um, that lead us into this year mm. from this area because certainly the Japanese economy was badly hit. Mm. Uh, but Japan uh, has also uh, taken steps in some other areas that are, are have been identified as priorities for this year. Mm. And one is the uh, the beginning of the digital agency, which is um, set to improve the convenience of Japanese by digitalizing uh, many records and uh, uh, official documents uh, and access to them and, and how you can uh, sort of manage uh, in the, what in the past required in-person trips to several different offices <laughs> uh, without doing that. Uh, and also then allowed Japanese uh, agencies to provide better services, social services and whatnot uh, by, by keeping track of, of the corresponding work of other agencies. And the other area is uh, 
Well, I think space still takes the top, but this other area, the next area is also one that's very, very close to my heart. And that is the um, toward zero emissions. Uh, the, the work uh, toward meeting the sustainable development goals, particularly on air quality. Uh, and last year, uh, one of our foreign contributors in India brought to our attention the, uh, the inspiration that Japan, uh, a Japanese city has provided uh, and the cooperation it is providing to uh, Delhi in India, which has horrible air pollution, um, and how that city and the community-based effort there, as well as the government activities there, are working to uh, clean up the air and inspiring Delhi as to how it can bring its own population into uh, the conversation so that they can repeat something similar that will work for them. So I think we're going to see more of this, which started, I think, well, it didn't just start last year, but we began covering it last year. But this kind of thing has been identified as a huge priority for the Suga government. And Japan is setting off on this uh, path toward zero emissions in many areas. And we're going to find countries, other countries in Asia looking toward Japan for leadership here. It was an exciting year in technology. Last year, streaming services cashed in from the lack of our act outdoor activity. When the last article in the year of our story series was um, pop culture brings fun relief to Japan and the world. Despite re reading like news and hearing news and stories about event cancellations or um, places closing down, you know, we were also kind of gifted with like online experiences and that kind of stuff. I know Ariel, you, you were um, covering a lot of these stories as they were breaking. Also, you were keeping a, a track of what the, the conversation around pop cult culture in Japan. Could you give us some of your selections from last year's um, pop culture and entertainment? Yeah, selection is right because there was so much going on. Um, but I guess uh, the takeaway point from here was the fact that the more uh, mainstream and perhaps established uh, events and outdoor activities that we associate with pop culture and entertainment uh, suffered greatly during this whole period. So as you mentioned, uh, film festivals, like for example, the Cannes Film Festival uh, or the Tribeca Film Festival in the US uh, had to be either cancelled or they moved online. Um, and uh, they, they, there was an adjustment in many aspects of this um, this whole uh, part of the economy. So film productions had to be delayed. There were virtually no large uh, releases this whole year because, uh, you know, crews just couldn't meet to produce films. But on the other hand, there were other uh, sectors of the uh, entertainment that could thrive with the fact that we were all cooped up at home all over the world, all at the same time. And we can meet our loved ones and we wanted to ways to interact and watch things together. And so, you know, one of the good examples is um, Animal Crossing, the video game, Animal Crossing New Horizons, the video game produced by Nintendo that sold 26 million copies since it was released in March 2020. And March was right in the middle of the pandemic. And so it really hit uh a very sort of soft spot of trying to reassure everybody and giving an escape to people in this cute, adorable, plushy world um, when you could interact with all your friends, but just online. 
And another example that comes from Japan is also uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba, so Demon Slayer, uh, the anime series that was first released uh, on Netflix uh, in 2019 and throughout 2020 was trending um, online and you know people were watching it and so on. And clearly it became so popular that uh, when they finally released the latest installment of the film in October, uh, it became the highest box office sales grossing anime film in history, uh, beating, you know, the historic film Spirited Away produced by Studio Ghibli in 2001. So, you know, it was a, a time where a lot of people struggled. Many entertainers had to deal with what do we do without shows? What do we do without films? Um, but uh, at the same point, we still had, we still needed escape in, and we, you know, we found other ways of enjoying uh, entertainment online. We had one other sort of pop uh, feature that, that hit Japan, uh, hit Japan and also the world. And that is uh, Japan's uh, cute, cuddly little uh, creature to save the world from uh, pandemics uh, called Amabie. And uh, Amabie uh, is a uh, part a sea creature, part bird, uh, has three legs and, um, says that if you repeat its um, its design, if you repeat its image, uh, that you will be protected from pandemics. So that has reached uh, all over the world in very many forms, even Russian nesting dolls. Well, team, thanks uh, for the your enthusiasm to the you know Japan Food Project. I'm excited. I'm really excited to hear the. Um, the last year's stories that you present and uh, see uh, the, the, we have a lot of I was so amazed that we have covered a lot of stories last year and uh, to wrap up maybe last year the China was the center of our problem and it will continue uh, this year maybe uh, but see uh, the we will I'm sure that we will cover a lot of stories this year uh, with the, uh, the Japanese angle and uh, well, the readers, uh, the listeners, well, please, uh, uh, you know, stay in tune with us and uh, we will uh, present more and more exciting stories from Japan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This was the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Catch you next time.